It's November the 24th, 1718. A merchant ship lies at anchor somewhere off the island of Hispaniola. It gently lists in the azure waters of the Caribbean. A soft breeze catches the black flag atop the mainmast. As it unfurls, the defiant skeletal grin of death's head transforms into a mocking grimace. On board the brigantine, the notorious pirate, Captain Charles Vane, sits in his quarters, stewing, awaiting his fate. On deck is a crowd of around 90 men. Some are drunk and rowdy, others sober and deadly serious. You could cut the tension with a knife. Charles Vane is led out of his cabin by his quartermaster, John Rackham. Vane stands in front of his company and tilts his head back. It's his trademark pose, defiance. He confronts the men closest to him. Their look is hostile, a cold anger glimmers in their eyes. Vane shakes his head in disgust. He saves his greatest contempt for Rackham, Calico Jack, as he's known, because of the colorful Indian textiles he likes to wear. Vane reminds his quartermaster that if it wasn't for him, Rackham would be dressed in rags, not these fine cotton clothes. Now he turns his wrath on the whole company, bringing curses down on their heads. He made them the most feared band of pirates on the high seas. And now, like the disloyal dogs they are, they have turned on him. Rackham, growing nervous at the rising murmurs among the crew, cuts Vane's speech short. This isn't personal, Rackham argues. It is the way of the pirates, it's the code. As Vane well knows, the captain serves at the pleasure of his crew. Rackham reads out the petition. Yesterday, they had a French vessel in their sights. The majority of the crew wanted to pursue the prize, but Vane refused, depriving them of the bounty they desired, nay, that they deserved. A sneer of agreement spreads through the crowd. Rackham grows in confidence. He accuses Vane of cowardice. Like a lily-livered milksop, he turned tail and ran away. Vane is stung by the crew's laughter. He growls and gives the men nearest to him a look of such rage that he quickly quiets them. Perhaps Rackham senses he has gone too far, even now, fallen and friendless as he is. The name of Charles Vane still inspires terror. Rackham must also realize if this vote goes against him, if Vane isn't ousted, it'd be like facing the devil himself. Rackham hurriedly calls the meeting to an end. It's time to vote. 
he reads out a resolution against Vane's honour and dignity that he be branded with the name of coward, deposed from command and turned out of the company with marks of infamy. The men exchange glances, most avoid looking at Vane. Vane glares at Rackham. Rackham takes a deep breath. All those in favour, say aye. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Only a few months earlier, Vane had been riding high laughing in the face of the new royal governor, Woods Rogers, as he burst through a naval blockade on Nassau. But still, he feels the walls closing in. December 1718 also saw the execution of 30 or so pirates in South Carolina, including Major Steed Bonnet. It also saw the severed head of Blackbeard paraded through the streets of Williamsburg, Virginia. Woods Rogers is now in charge in Nassau, but his grip on power is tenuous, and the figure of the unrepentant Charles Vane still looms large on the horizon. Will Vane return to take his revenge, or will his fierce defiance be his undoing? Desperate times produce desperate men, and his is a desperate story indeed.
It's August 1718, three months before Vane will face a mutiny by his crew. Fleeing Nassau, Vane's company heads south. Piecing together their movements isn't easy. There are reports of them operating between Cuba and the Bahamas. They capture a couple of sloops and a brigantine, which Vane himself takes command of. At around this time, the London Weekly Journal reports the capture of two ships bound from Nassau to England. The paper doesn't name the pirate captain responsible, but it does make note of his cruelty and his desperation. Could this be Charles Vane? It certainly sounds like him. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates. Word spread that Charles Vane was this violent, brutal pirate, and it's all true. In fact, it probably wasn't stressed enough about how bad of a person he actually was. He's not just presented in major government documents or letters that he's a brutal, terrible pirate in a way to try to besmirch his name. There are numerous accounts of survivors of his attacks, of his cruelty towards both his own crew and also his victims. He enjoyed having them punished and beaten. He would maim them. So he used these terror tactics much more than most pirates. Does Vane's wild and violent behavior divide his crew? It's easy to imagine Vane's growing isolation. On the run, with support wavering, he has to up the ante. In an effort to keep his men happy, Vane is driven to carry out his boldest and most outrageous operation yet. He sails his squadron to Charleston, South Carolina. There, he blockades the harbor entrance with his own 12-gun brigantine and a sloop under the command of a trusted lieutenant, Charles Yates. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. To get in and out of Charleston, the only significant port for the colony of South Carolina and its lifeline and commerce, you had to go through a narrow bar that was an entrance to the sea that kind of opened up into a vast lagoon where a couple rivers come together. But from Charleston, you can't see this entrance to the sea. So your vessels leave the docks in Charleston and they go off beyond sight. And once they get around the corner, so to speak, pirate vessels can just be sitting there in this narrow passage and grab them all. And no one in Charleston would know, right? They just keep sending ships out until one day somebody says, hey, no ships have been coming in. Have you noticed that lately, right? Every ship that attempts to leave sails straight into Vane's clutches. Over a 36-hour period, he captures no less than eight ships, from the 15-ton Dove to the 300-ton Neptune. One of the ships he takes is the slaver, Dorothy. Vane transfers 90 enslaved people onto Yates's sloop. But Yates has his own plans. He has grown tired of Vane's leadership and has been waiting for a chance to escape. Seizing his moment, Yates rallies his crew and breaks from the pirate fleet, making off with the valuable human cargo in the process. Vane gives chase and fires off a broadside. Vane's brigantine is bigger and better armed, but Yates slips away on the faster sloop. And the first thing Yates does when he is free from Vane's influence? 
he sends a messenger to Charleston, offering to surrender if the governor of South Carolina will pardon him. It must have been a delicate negotiation, given that Yates has just taken part in the blockade of the city. But the return of the 90 enslaved people likely helped. Eventually, the governor agrees. Yates and his men take the pardon. In Vane's eyes, no doubt compounding the sense of betrayal. But the enraged Vane doesn't have long to dwell on Yates's treachery. It turns out that the merchants of Charleston have had enough. Towards the end of September, they fit out two military-grade sloops and set them on Vane's trail under the command of a militia colonel called William Rett. Vane manages to evade this citizen posse, which is no small task. As we saw in a previous episode, Colonel Rett would go on to snare the gentleman pirate Steed Bonnet. But Vane's success is short-lived. It's not long before Woods Rogers convinces Benjamin Hornigold and John Cockrum to go after Vane. The once fearless pirate captain must have felt that the world was closing in on him. Back in Nassau, the new governor is getting on with the task in hand. The mass execution of pirates helped Rogers to assert his authority, but he still faces opposition. The whole point of him being governor was to get rid of piracy, but he's being left completely to his own devices. The British government won't give him funds. They've made him governor, but without a salary. So financially, he's got no support happening whatsoever. Those who were appointed to defend the island left and went to Jamaica, so he didn't have any offshore defenses either. And also, with so many problems happening on the island, is that he had a lot of opposition from the locals that were living there. The people who were living in bad condition were unhappy because he hadn't done anything to fix that situation. He also had a lot of opposition from locals who worked with pirates, especially after he did that one mass execution of pirates. This really upset at least like half the population there. You know, you got one half who are angry because he hasn't cleaned up the island well enough. The other half are angry at him because he executed so many pirates. So he's got a lot of opposition pretty much from every local living there. Things come to a head. In a tavern on the waterfront at Nassau, three men sit down together. They have chosen a corner table, hidden away from the rest of the bar in a cozy nook. They nod guardedly to one another and keep their heads down, except to cast wary glances around the dimly lit interior. This is an old haunt of pirates so they might expect to be among friends, but these days you can never tell. The sputtering candles flicker, occasionally casting a sinister light over their drawn faces. Their expressions are grim, determined. This place isn't what it used to be. They reminisce about the good old days, the wild times, the easy pickings. The damn governor has put an end to all that. He even expects them to do back-breaking labor and stand guard like militiamen. And who are they guarding against? 
pirates. Men like their old mate Charles Vane. Men like themselves. The time for complaints has passed. It's now time for action. The three men lean in, in a low, grumbling whisper. First things first, kill Rogers. It has to be done. As long as that man is governor, they'll never have any peace. What about the other council members? Someone asks. Kill them too, kill them all. Stick the knife in deep and twist. The man mimes the bloody act with childish glee. The others grin as they picture it. And what then? Then we send word to Vane and deliver the fortress up to him. By the end, the three of them have got so carried away, they are loudly drinking a toast to the death of the scurvy governor and his lackeys, which goes down well with the other customers. During their conversation, another man has quietly occupied a nearby table. His face is shrouded in shadows. He seems to pay no attention to what they're saying. But he leaves his rum half drunk and rushes from the tavern before the three conspirators have finished. He heads straight for the governor's house. There's more than one way for an ex-pirate to make a living. This man's trade is information. The man gives Rogers the names of the three conspirators and the details of their plan. But Rogers knows better than anyone how precarious the situation in Nassau is. He has to tread carefully. Perhaps this is just loose tavern talk. Three men in their cups venting their grievances. An overreaction could be just as dangerous as doing nothing. The next day, at first light, a company of guardsmen rounds up the conspirators and leads them to Woods Rogers. He nods to the captain of the guard. The first of the conspirators is led forward. His shirt is ripped from his back. Rogers sentences the three men to a severe whipping. It's rough justice, but he stops short of having them executed. For the next few weeks, Rogers waits anxiously. He sends out his spies to gauge the mood of the citizenry. Will more people turn against him? Or will the opposition to his regime melt away now that he has shown some mercy? Rogers knows he can't afford to let his guard down. The threat from hostile forces at home may have passed, but other dangers lurk. There is talk of another war against Spain. And like the men who plotted against him, Rogers still believes Charles Vane is plotting his return, preparing to move against him. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Over the past few months, Vane's own troubles have been mounting up. As we've seen, his blockade of Charleston ended with the defection of Yates and his crew. By October 1718, Vane is looking for another bold gesture to keep the remainder of his company on side. He knows that if he fails, it may well be the end of the line for him. Dr. Manashang Pal is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. The idea and the fact that pirates could depose a captain is really interesting and shocking. And certainly that is like probably like the starkest ideological difference between a pirate ship and any other form of European shipboard life at this point in time. The captain is otherwise like untouchable, even if he's very bad at his job or very abusive or very crazy or whatever else. You can't just hold a vote and say he's not the captain anymore. And if you do, the legal repercussions are pretty scary. Pirates could and regularly did depose their captain. Vane proposes that they attack the Bahamian island of Eleuthera, 50 miles east of New Providence. Although it isn't a direct attack on Nassau itself, it is perhaps the next best thing. If Rogers fails to protect the island, his authority will be undermined. Eleuthera is a thin streak of land, 200 square miles in extent unfortified, occupied only by farming families. It's an easy target. The raid is a great success. The pirates meet little opposition and sail off with as much of the farmer's wealth and livestock as they can cram onto the decks of Vane's brigantine. They also take the opportunity to replenish their stocks of liquor. The mood of the company is much improved. Drunken laughter vies with squawks and bleats as the pirates chase chickens and herd goats off the decks and towards the galley. But pirates aren't known for self-restraint. The temptations of fresh meat and alcohol prove too much for the crew. It's an orgy of consumption, and soon the stocks run out. The hangover begins. And it's a big one. Before too long, bellies start to rumble. Tempers flare. Dark looks flash towards Vane. What use is a pirate captain who can't even feed his crew? Vane knows that he has to find the next prize, and fast. Just when the grumbling is teetering on open rebellion, the lookouts spot a ship on the horizon. It's a vision to lift any pirate's heart. For Vane, it could be a lifesaver. Could this be the prize that will win back his men's favor? As Captain Vane peers through his spyglass, his heart races at the thrill of the chase. He can feel the excitement among his crew. This is what they live for.
This is what it means to be alive. This is what it means to be a pirate. And it's why he will never surrender. He can see the target clearly now. It's a large frigate, unarmed by the looks of it. A smirk of satisfaction kinks his features. There is just one more task to be completed before they open the attack. Vane orders the black flag, hoisted. Vane lifts the spyglass to his eye again. But an uneasy feeling settles on him as he watches a flag raised on the other ship. A white banner, spotted with fleur-de-lis. The ensign of the French Navy. A further transformation comes over the ship. Gun holes suddenly appear. The barrels of huge cannons slide forward. The French frigate, which he had thought unarmed, lets loose a mighty broadside. The first shots miss their target. Vane's brigantine is undamaged. For now, but Vane is no fool. He can see that he is massively outgunned. He orders the ship to come about. To his dismay, he sees the French frigate turn likewise. It's giving chase. The hunters have become the hunted. Vane's decision does not go down well with his crew. Desperation clouds their judgment. For many of them, this risk is worth the reward. It is now that Calico Jack Rackham, in his brightly printed cotton shirt, reveals his true colors. Rackham demands that Vane turn and fight. Vane shakes his head. This is madness. The French man-o-war has twice their firepower. Rackham is all for putting it to a vote. It is an extraordinary thing to propose in the midst of a battle. Vane feels the anger rising in him. In any fight or chase, the captain's word is final. So says the pirate code, and so says Charles Vane. So you can certainly make an argument that because a pirate ship can like vote down a captain for incompetence or for having a bad attitude or not showing bravery in the face of battle or whatever else, that meritocracy is more at work in a pirate ship. The idea of absolute power is already kind of undercut in that structure. For day-to-day -day operations, the only place where the captain's will is absolute is in battle for very good reasons. You can't really stop in the middle of a battle and hold a vote. It's not a good idea. The standoff casts a light on the tension between Rackham and Vane, but also on the relationship between quartermaster and captain. Who has the most power? The answer may not be as simple as we assume. The captain and the quartermaster had different roles on the ship. The captain was the navigator for the most part and made the big decisions, and he is the one who kind of set down the rules. The quartermaster, though, in a way, actually had a lot more authority than the captain because the quartermaster is the one who made the ultimate decision of punishments. But also the really big thing that quartermasters would do is they were the ones when they would attack ships would go onto the ship and then negotiate what goods to steal, how to treat the people they were attacking. So the quartermaster is the one who made all these big decisions to keep the crew happy, to keep the crew organized, and to make sure that pirate ships actually got the wealth that they were after. All of that was up to the quartermaster. An ambitious quartermaster is behind the downfall of many a pirate captain. As the one who dishes out both punishments and prizes, he has extraordinary influence over the crew. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Vane's ship succeeds in escaping the guns of the French frigate. The pirates are out of danger. But Vane isn't. The company passes an uneasy night at anchor. The following day, the inevitable showdown comes. This time, it's Rackham's turn to invoke the pirate code. A vote is taken on Vane's authority. The resolution is read out, branding him a coward. Vane is deposed by a huge majority. It's an ignominious end to his brief and bloodthirsty career. The ultimate irony is that the man who brings him down is not his arch-nemesis Woods Rogers, but one of his closest allies, Calico Jack Rackham. Another irony is that Vane is forced out not for excessive violence and cruelty, but for excessive caution. Have we overestimated Vane's powers and the terror in which he was held? Or does it just illustrate the power of the pirate's code? We'll never know for sure. A sloop is loaded with supplies and handed over to Vane. He sails off with 16 loyal crew members. Though his pride is wounded, Vane's life is spared. Rackham is voted in as the new leader of the company. The transfer of power is complete, and it all happened in a relatively smooth and civilized manner. Another interesting insight into the pirate code at work. If Vane's story tells us anything, it's just how precarious the life of a pirate captain is. All his past achievements, escaping a naval blockade, defying the governor, capturing countless prizes, terrorizing the colonies, count for nothing. Six months earlier, he had declared himself the governor of Nassau. Now, he is a nobody. Just another pirate with a small ship and a handful of rogues to man it. We can only imagine Vane's mood as he sails south for Jamaica. It's a fair bet he's not the forgiving type. He barks commands at the few men who have stood by him. Rackham may have taken his command from him, but he's still a pirate. Off the northwest coast of Jamaica, Vane captures another sloop and a couple of smaller boats. It's starting to look like the irrepressible Captain Vane is back in business. 
At the beginning of February 1719, Vane and his small fleet sail out from Guanaja, an island off the Honduran coast. He is hell-bent on restoring his fortunes and his reputation. But a few days later, a cold wind blows from the east, and the skies darken. As the storm turns day to night, Vane strains to keep the rest of his fleet in view. One by one, the other ships disappear. A sickening sensation grips him. Vane stands on his quarterdeck, raging at the storm. He has been betrayed by men, and now the heavens have turned on him as well. The sea rises up, threatening to swallow his small sloop. Mountainous waves hang menacingly before crashing down with destructive might. The sails are ripped to shreds before the crew has a chance to trim them. The rigging is snatched away. The ship spins wildly. Racing torrents flood the decks from every direction. Vane watches helplessly as his men are picked up and carried overboard. The mast strains and splits, then flies off into the darkness. The onslaught continues for two days. Two days in the clutches of the storm. Everything on board, supplies, arms, ammunition, equipment, and men is swept away. Then, suddenly, the very deck that Vane is standing on is wrenched away from beneath his feet. The swirling waters engulf him. His mouth fills with choking brine. Last regrets race through his mind as he blacks out. But he never got his revenge on his crew, on Rackham, or on Woods Rogers. Vane comes to, sprawled on a beach. Around him lies the wreckage of his ship. He is alive, but only just. Vane finds himself on an uninhabited island in the Bay of Honduras. He's marooned, forced to live off the land as best he can and pray for a passing ship. After a few weeks, Vane's hopes soar as an English merchant ship sails into view. It is commanded by a Captain Holford. It just so happens that Holford is an old friend of Vane's. Well, perhaps friend is putting it too strongly. Charles, I shan't trust you aboard my ship unless I carry you prisoner, says Holford. I shall find you cabaling with my men to knock me on the head and run away with my ships of pirating. It's a revealing verdict from one who knows Vane well. Holford says he will be back on the island in a month. His parting words are, If I find you upon this island when I come back, I'll carry you to Jamaica and hang you. When a second ship puts in, the captain and crew don't recognize him. He signs on as a crew member under a false name. But it's here that Vane's luck finally runs out. Before the ship he's on has set sail, 
Captain Holford returns. The next thing Vane knows, there's a gun at his head. True to his word, Holford takes Vane straight to Jamaica and delivers him to the authorities in chains. Two years will pass before Vane is put on trial. Two years that he spends rotting in a hot, crowded Jamaican jail with only his regrets for company. But what of the fate of his nemesis, Woods Rogers? After the failed coup, Rogers' position was more secure, for the time being at least. That is sort of the consolidation, the moment when Rogers is no longer worried about internal revolution. He's called their bluff. He no longer has to worry about an immediate revolt from below that will overthrow him. And he can start concentrating his energies on the Spanish and on trying to round up people like Bain who are still at large out there and stop worrying about a coup from within Nassau itself. Rogers is denied the satisfaction of bringing Vane to justice himself, but he does receive a consolation prize. Things haven't gone entirely smoothly for Calico Jack Rackham since he took over from Vane. Sometime in May, 1719, Rackham turns up in Nassau, where he petitions the governor for the king's pardon. Rogers must laugh at the irony. Vane's ship and crew come crawling back begging for mercy. In Nassau, Rackham will fall in love with a woman called Anne Bonny. And it won't be long before they're both back out on the waters. For Rackham and so many others, once a pirate, always a pirate. Of the 200 pirates that took the pardon, soon enough, about 100 of those, half of those pirates actually went back into piracy after. So they would take the pardon for a while to get themselves reestablished, maybe lie low for a bit. And then for whatever reason, whatever their personal decision was, they would go right back to piracy. So the pardon he's offering was only really a temporary solution. As a weapon for suppressing pirates, the pardon alone was clearly not enough. It needed to be backed up by force. But the problem is the governments just weren't providing the resources that were necessary to actually defend the islands from piracy. So there's only so much that these governors can do because particularly in an area like the Bahamas, which is made up of loads of tiny islands, all kind of clustered together, it's very easy for a pirate to hide. It's very easy for pirate clusters to develop. You know, so many of them already had such a permanent presence. They weren't afraid of any sort of authority coming in to the Bahamas and trying to rid it of piracy is pretty much a doomed endeavor from the start. It's true that piracy could never be completely wiped out, but just by his presence in Nassau, Rogers has drastically curtailed the pirates' activities. The thing you need to do to stop the pirates is to remove that one thing that's sustaining them and allowing them to become an imperial level danger. And that's having this safe base, this pirate republic and pirate society in the Bahamas. Without that, they're just a bunch of vessels out there in the sea that will eventually run into mishap or need harbor or need resupply, and you can pick them off one by one. It's inevitable that they will be pushed aside. But as long as they had this base, that wasn't possible. So from the empire's perspective, 
just the fact that Woods Rogers was there and it was no longer a pirate base of operations and no longer a place where they could defend themselves meant that the pirates were no longer an imperial level threat. Then, in March 1719, Rogers receives news that unites the colony. Britain and Spain are officially at war again. Pirates, former pirates, farmers, tavern keepers, governors, soldiers, all find themselves on the same side. Nothing helps bring unity around a government than an external threat. And although I don't think Rogers would choose to have the threat of Spain there because it was such a real threat and his odds of defending the island were so small, but it did galvanize the pirates together to defend Nassau because none of them wanted Spain to take control, right? Many of these pirates from this generation lived through the War of Spanish Secession. So the animosity, the dislike of Spain, the sense that Spain is the enemy, was still there. Rogers issues privateering commissions to the former pirates, taking personal loans to fund their raiding expeditions. It's in the pirates' interest to play ball. They know that if Spain is victorious, the pardons they have accepted from the English crown will count for nothing. So they were in trouble, right? They'd suddenly go from pardon pirates to being hanged for their piracies against the King of Spain. So they had lots of incentives to make sure that they and Nassau didn't fall into Spanish hands, which led them to more enthusiastically help Woods Rogers hold down the place against the threat of that invasion. On February 24th, 1720, Woods Rogers' worst fears come to fruition. A Spanish invasion force is sighted just off Nassau. Rogers counts 12 ships, three frigates, a brigantine, and eight sloops. Rogers' pulse races, his palms grow damp. He has fought the Spanish before. He has even led a raid against one of their cities and captured a mighty treasure galleon. But he was younger then. He had a young man's arrogance. He believed he could succeed in whatever he attempted. In the years since, he's suffered loss, injury, illness, and failure. He rubs his chin, remembering the trauma of having half his jawbone blown away by a Spanish musket ball. For the past two years, Rogers has worked tirelessly rebuilding Nassau's defenses. All that he can do now is pray. He closes his eyes and murmurs, Our Father, who art in heaven, deliver us from evil. A hundred soldiers and five hundred militiamen take up their positions. The 50 guns in the rebuilt fort are aimed at the Spanish squadron. From his vantage point on the ramparts, Rogers looks out at his first line of defense in the harbor. The 36-gun Delicia, the original ship he sailed out to Nassau on, stands ready to repel the invaders. She is backed by a passing naval frigate, HMS Flamborough, with 24 guns. Faced with this show of force, the Spanish back out of a direct assault. Instead, they land a company of soldiers on Hog Island, the small islet that faces Nassau Harbor. As the sun sets, Rogers holds his breath 
as he waits anxiously to see what the enemy will do next. Incredibly, the Spanish force is repelled by two lone sentries. Under the cover of darkness, they fire from multiple positions from above the Spanish, giving the Spanish the impression that they face a superior force dug in on the hillside. They mount a heroic stand and force the Spanish to retreat. Rogers can breathe again. He turns to the captain of the guard and asks who the brave defenders are. He is told that they are two liberated enslaved people. Rogers nods his head. Once he had bought and sold men from Africa. Now he's been saved by them. With no support from England, Rogers continues to finance the war effort on credit. In one of his many letters of complaint to the authorities back in England, he writes, Having no news of my bills being paid at home, I am forced to run too much in debt. The way Rogers sees it, he is left with no choice. If he doesn't run up these enormous debts, we shall starve or be a sacrifice to the Spaniards. It was a tenuous situation, and Rogers was under terrible stress the entire time, short on supplies. He had no contact for a year. His letters weren't returned from London. He was kind of entirely on his own. He ran out of money to buy munitions and gunpowder and food and things to keep up his garrison. He ended up spending his own money to do so until he was indebted to various merchants and traders to the tune of 6,000 pounds. Until finally, dejected and hearing nothing from London, he returned home personally to England to try to see if he could remedy the situation, do some in-person lobbying, only to discover that the king had fired him at some point in the passing months and had already sent a new governor on his way without even informing him. And so, in March 1721, Woods Rogers discovers his governorship has suddenly come to an end. He has returned to England a disappointed man, friendless and penniless. Worse, he's destitute. Like Charles Vane, he would even find himself behind bars. Though in his case, it is a debtor's prison in London, not death row in Port Royal, Jamaica. By strange coincidence, it's about the same time that Charles Vane finally faces justice. On March 22nd, 1721, Vane goes on trial. He has left a trail of victims in his wake. He has robbed and killed, abused and tortured his way to notoriety. It isn't hard to find witnesses willing to testify against him at his trial. Vane offers no defense. The verdict surprises no one. Guilty. On Wednesday, March 29th, 1721, Charles Vane is hanged at Gallows Point in Port Royal. His body is taken to Gunkey Harbour, where it is hung in chains from a gibbet for all to see. It will remain there for several years, spinning in the sea breeze as it slowly rots away. Does the end of Vane 
bring some solace to the downcast Woods Rogers. He must wonder what it has all been for. He took on the Spanish and won. He took on the pirates and won. But what has he to show for it? Rogers is a complex and difficult man, a patriotic war hero, a daring mariner, a resourceful strategist. Quick-tempered and quarrelsome, he turned friends into lifelong enemies. But his unbending resolve also made him a formidable foe. Now the forgotten hero languishes in a prison cell, dreaming of past voyages and former glories. And yet, he still hopes that one day his reputation and his fortunes will be restored, that he will be recognized as the man who finally broke the Pirates of the Caribbean. Next week on Real Pirates. Facing hostile ports and naval vessels at every turn, you'd think by now the last Pirates of the Caribbean would call time on life under the black flag. But Calico Jack Rackham is now in command of Vane's ship and crew and is ready to strike out on his own. Little does he know, his greatest achievement might be launching the career of another pirate, one of the most feared, reviled, and controversial outlaws in history, Anne Bonny. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Bexon. Written by Roger Morris. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Matias Torres Sole, Carla Flores, and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.